Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is June the 21st, 2023, longest day of the year. Interesting piece in the New York Times today, asking a number of its writers to summarize America in a single book uh, or piece of culture, a movie, one piece of culture that captures in the language of the New York Times the true spirit of America, all sorts of interesting responses, one from Maureen Dowd on the invasion of the body snatchers, if that's the case, she probably stars in it. Um, other interesting takes, uh, Ross Douthat, a very sensible fellow, uh, with a very sensible answer, The Great Gatsby, one of the greatest of all American books on the energy and perhaps economic fraud uh, of the country. Brett Stevens, another of their columnists who's been on the show, talks about Pulp Fiction, another book with a, another, sorry, movie with a huge amount of energy. And then others like Pamela Paul, who's also been on the show, goes back to 19th century works of art, uh, William Dean Howells, A Hazard of New Fortunes, uh, a book about rapid technological change and wealth, a Gilded Age novel, America being, of course, the quintessential Gilded Age country. Um, one man who's been, who, who spent his career thinking about ways of summarizing America is my guest today on the show. Jackson Lears has a number of books out um, on the history of American culture. One, The Rebirth of a Nation. Uh, another, No Place of Grace, all about the transformation of American culture. Fables of Abundance, um, Something for Nothing. And his latest book, uh, which came out this week, Animal Spirits, the American pursuit of vitality from Cape, uh, from camp meeting to Wall Street, another book about the 19th century. Jackson's joining us from Charlottesville, Virginia, probably an appropriate place for him to be talking about this sort of thing. Jackson, congratulations uh, on the new book, uh, Animal Spirits. So let me uh, do a New York Times on you. In terms of uh, your new book, Animal Spirits, The American Pursuit of Vitality from Camp Meeting to Wall Street, is there one piece of culture that somehow captures what you call animal spirits? Huh. Yeah, well, that's, uh, I, I could think of uh, uh, a, a number of possibilities. One of, one of my... Uh, Choices would would uh, would have to be uh, William probably uh, William William James's uh, uh, essays on uh, pluralism and chance and possibility uh, that uh, constituted some of his uh, most famous works in the in the early twentieth century uh, and that. Uh, tried to capture, uh, I think, um, a sense of, of, uh, uh, of possibility and of uh, the, the role of uh, intelligence in shaping the future 
without losing uh, the darker dimensions of that. Uh, in fact, James and, and John Maynard Keynes are sort of the two guiding spirits of, of my book because both were uh, philosophers of chance uh, in many ways. And, uh, and of course, Keynes was the guy who invented the term animal spirits, Keynes, of course, being anything uh, but American. Um, yes, well, well, I have to stop you there and say one, one of the reasons I got into this is that, is that I felt uh, that book you just put on the screen was uh, uh, in, inadequate in the, uh, in the way. Yeah, it's a book by Akerlof and Schiller, an economics book uh, called, uh, like yours, Animal Spirits, How yes. Human but, Psychology Drives the Economy and Why It Matters for Global Capitalism. Very different kind of book from yours. But the... But the uh, uh, the point about animal spirits is that actually that Keynes did not originate the term. It's a term that has a long history going back to uh, uh, the second century. Uh, uh, oh, I apologize. So he maybe a better way of putting it is he popularized the term. He absolutely did. And, uh, and that's what got me into the subject uh, because Keynes is famous for arguing that what he called animal spirits, a spontaneous urge to action is what really motivates investors and makes uh, capitalist economies hum. And uh, it's not about rational calculation. It's not about uh, seriously probing uh, and thinking through the uh, benefits to be gained from a particular investment that you're about to make. The reason people invest uh, ultimately long-term uh, is not rational calculation. It's uh, a sense that by God, this is this is going to work. I just I just feel it in my bones. This is going to pay off. So it's that spontaneity, uh, it's that sense of vitality and possibility that is so precious uh, to this to the emotional history of capitalism, really, and capitalism itself, and particularly finance capitalism, is based on uh, this uh, kind of. Uh, emotional uh, and even irrational foundation, uh, which nevertheless can lead to tremendous increases in, in asset prices or conversely, you know, tremendous collapses in them. So this, so part of this book is about that, uh, that emotional history of capitalism, uh, but it's, a, it's, a, it's about the, the broader uh, kinds of uh, issues raised by the concept of animal spirits, which is which really involve the connections between uh, body and soul uh, or mind and matter. Uh, this is the personal level, you know, the kind of personal origins. Of uh, so, Jackson, would it be fair to say that you're challenging the traditional Weberian notion of American capitalism, of the Protestant ethic, of this internalization and guilt and loneliness and all the other uh, assumptions that many people make about American capitalism, that it was it was driven by a particular kind of puritanism. For you, there's a religiosity at the heart of American 19th century capitalism, but almost, I, I, I'm not an expert on religion, but it, it brings to mind some sort of whirling dervish, some other religious tradition, uh, which is quite different from Calvinism. Well, I think that's right. I, and, and I'm not trying to put Weber on the shelf at all. Uh, he's still on my shelf, on my bookshelf. Yeah, he's on all of our shelves, Jackson. I, I think he's a very serious and important thinker. And I think those aspects of capitalism that he emphasized 
are, are tremendously important. Uh, disciplined achievement, double entry bookkeeping, uh, the uh, precise calculation, all of, all of the things that Weber charted as, as a core uh, of a, a good part of capitalism, but that's not the only kind of capitalism. That's, that's the kind that works best with Adam Smith's uh, version, by the way, because Smith describes a, you know, a, a fairly bland nation of shopkeepers uh, which starts out to be Britain, but of course ends up being lots of other nations as well. Uh, shopkeepers uh, animated mainly by the, by the desire for betterment, for gradual betterment. But in fact, that overlooks entirely uh, the uh, swerving, lurching nature uh, of uh, the business cycle and the capacity uh, of capitalists to win all or lose everything uh, uh, like gamblers on the, on the basis of a single or a decision or a series of decisions. Uh, and uh, it's the, the religious aspect of it is uh, that dream, there are a couple of religious aspects of it. One is that it, that it involves dreams of magical transformation, overnight transformation uh, through the infusions of, of great wealth or the ingestion uh, of a particular commodity like a patent medicine. These aspects of capitalism, in, in, certainly in the American context, and I would argue European, more, more broadly global context, uh, have, have always been there, uh, that it, it, emotional nature. But it's, but it's also, uh, it, even, it even goes deeper than that. It's almost metaphysical, because if you think uh, of uh, vitality as uh, the power that animates the universe as a kind of life force, uh, which religions call God or spirit or soul, uh, you can also think of capital itself uh, as uh, a kind of power that animates the universe. Uh, and in fact, uh, people, investors themselves, like Daniel Defoe, a contemporary or near contemporary of Adam Smith, wrote about it, uh, about credit, for example. And he was, a, he was an investor himself, often a feckless and un, uh, uh, unsuccessful one, but he wrote about capital and about credit in particular as this invisible, odorless, tasteless force that nevertheless can create rise or ruin among uh, the business. Well, Jackson, um, Marx, of course, wrote uh, Das Kapital, in which he talked about this fetishization of capital. I, I don't suppose the Marxists would agree with your theory, would they? How, how does it fit in with a more traditional Marxist analysis of <clears throat> classic nineteenth century capitalism. I, I, I can see it. I can see them liking some elements of your argument and perhaps rejecting others. Oh, well, I think that's right. I think I think there's a strong element of of uh, what I would call popular vitalism in in Marx himself. And what he, what so enrages Marx is that the capitalist takes. Uh, the vital force of the laborer uh, and turns mm. it into, turns it against the laborer, mm. uh, whereas it should be something that's working, turns it into something that the, the capitalist can then use, a, com uh, a, a, a commodity, which he can then sell uh, and, and uh, create, a, create enormous fortunes at the, at the worker's expense. So uh, it's, it's no accident that critics uh, of 19th century capitalism, like Marx and others, referred to the vampirish nature of 
of the capitalists because he was sucking the vital force out of the laboring classes. So they had, they had a sense that life force was at the center of capitalism as well. And Marx, like Keynes, had a sense that there had to be a certain element of craziness to capitalism too. It wasn't all just rational calculation and, and uh, uh, steady work. Uh, it was the willingness to take uh, to make leaps, uh, sometimes in the dark, uh, that that may or may not have worked out well. Uh, but it's that element of craziness that that uh, injected the dynamism into 19th century capitalism that Marx couldn't help celebrating, even in the Communist Manifesto. You know, where they where the uh, the capitalist has conjured whole populations out of the ground. Right. I mean, uh, and and in a sense. Uh... Pub Fiction and The Great Gatsby all, all come out of this. One other movie that comes to mind is uh, McCabe and Mrs. Miller, Robert Altman's movie. I'm not sure if you've seen that. Oh, I remember it well, yeah. Uh, yeah. About the, I guess it's almost like the, the casino quality of 19th century America. It was one giant casino. Um, is that, in a sense, what, you suggest in animal spirits. I mean, is this, and I'm not entirely sure, is, are, you, are you suggesting that it, 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 it was a fun place to live? I think it could have been for some people some of the time, sure. But I, I, I think the casino was always balanced. The casino-like aspects of capitalism were always balanced by efforts to contain chance, to make things more profitably, more, more predictably profitable. Uh, than, than just uh, uh, taking chances on, on, uh, on risky investments uh, would allow. And, and this is where we get, you know, this, the, the vast uh, uh, array of statistical uh, formulations, uh, market research and attempts. There's even uh, Wells Fargo Bank has even created what they call an animal spirits index, which claims to quantify uh, the possible, you know, the the uh, the mood of the marketplace. So there, there are all of these attempts to make uh, predictable and logical and orderly sense out of what is basically a uh, an irrational game, uh, and uh, it's uh, it's a combination that that works much of the time uh, to reassure people. Uh, they have financial advisors that tell them what they're doing uh, is going. Going to make sense. It's going to create a, a, a steady retirement income for them. But the financial advisors, and I'm speaking for myself here too, not as a financial advisor, but as someone who depends on them, uh, they're doing exactly what Keynes warned against, which is using the past, the immediate past, to predict the future and to say, uh, you know, we have these statistics uh, that will tell us exactly. Uh, how things are going to look. Or there was a, a sort of, if anything, I mean, you've mentioned Keynes, of course, as, as influencing you and uh, William James, but there's a, there's a poetry to all this. Is that why Whitman is also so important in terms of the, the spirit of this age, in terms of your intellectual history? Oh, absolutely. Well, Whit Whitman is at, is, at, is at the center of it. And uh, he, he postulates this pulsating universe, which is very much uh, uh, in the air in, in uh, 19th century America, the realization that the universe is not static and orderly, but it's vibrating uh, in some sense. And, and that human being individuals vibrate 
either in, in tune with or out of tune with the vibrations of the cosmos. And uh, in, in Whitman's case, this is often very sexually charged, uh, you know, in, in, his, in his cruising through uh, uh, Manhattan, but it's, but it's also philosophically, uh, it's, it's a kind of essentially romantic philosophy. Uh, and it manifests itself. I, we did a show earlier this year with an author, Susan Wells. Um, she has a new book out, An Assassin in Utopia, the true story of a 19th century sex cult and a president's murder. Uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the book. It's a really interesting take. But you're suggesting that there was a, in, in, in the same way as Wells writes his history, that there was a cult-like quality to the entire century. Uh, to, to the entire century, you say? Well, to the, the spirit of the age of your animal spirits, that it, that it sort of manifests well, itself in all sorts of strange no, cults. I think that, that uh, in my advertising book year, years ago, I, write about, I wrote about the, the, uh, the sorcery of the marketplace, the capacity of the marketplace to transform individuals or to claim to be able to transform them and uh, again, you know, through through the purchase of commodities or through in investment in, in certain assets. But <coughs> excuse me. Uh, but I think all of that instability, all of that cult like irrationality is constantly being balanced against the Weberian side of capitalism. So you've basically got two spirits of capitalism, at least here. I would say you have multiple ones, but let's just say you have. You have the uh, uh, the, Ve the Weberian sort, but then you all you also have uh, the the spirit of the confidence man, the spirit of the uh, 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 the plunging investor, uh, in in a sense, you know, Whitmanian capitalism uh, to balance. Uh, uh, so would it be fair to say that, as a consequence, uh, to make sense of the oddities of America in the 20th and even the 21st century, we still have this coexistence of what you call this sort of Whitman-esque capitalism mm -hmm. of, of, of perpetually trying to break out of the Viberian iron cage. There's always this tension between these two traditions. I, yeah, I think that's right. And it's, it's expressed in different idioms at different times. And uh, certainly... Uh, you know, when when the, uh, uh, the 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 flow of animal spirits uh, cannot be contained, as it cannot be contained in the 1920s, for example, uh, with the with the bull market of the 1920s, and when it bursts over the uh, the dams and the, and the, and and uh, uh, floods the landscape, and and ultimately. Uh, makes the numbers that pe that uh, stock market predictors have been using uh, ludicrous and, and, and absurd. And so people tend to fall back at such moments, uh, quite understandably, on uh, uh, injunctions to, uh, to hard work, to, uh, to steady labor, to, uh, uh, to putting our stock in something real rather than something ephemeral, like the hopes and dreams of investors. So you didn't get as much, the, the volume of shares traded in the New York Stock Exchange uh, did not reach 1929 levels again uh, for 30 plus, more than 30 years until 1961. 
right. even after prosperity returned after the Second World War. But this is um, this is a, a, again a, there is there is a uh, a kind of pendulum like right. It's interesting. Uh, I, I mentioned uh, that Duthat believed that uh, Gatsby somehow summarized it. Fitzgerald, when he wrote Gatsby, obviously was presenting a modern, a post-First World War America. But I'm guessing from your book, um, uh, from Animal Spirits, that in an odd way, the 1920s was a very much a continuation of the 19th century and that there was nothing much new about the 20s and nothing much new about Gatsby himself. There was nothing much new about the 1920s, except there was a, a veneer of, of uh, scientific uh, authority uh, that had descended over uh, the business class and the investing class and uh, certainly the financial world. Uh, and business had become far more corporate after the merger wave at the turn of the century and on into the early 20th century so that the image of the successful businessman had tra transformed from the paunchy bearded uh, late Victorian patriarch uh, in the 1890s, the Andrew Carnegie kind of figure, uh, to uh, the, the, uh, uh, the, the slim fit uh, gazelle-like uh, arrow collar man uh, and, and other figures uh, of the 1920s, uh, iconic figures who uh, embodied the new uh, world of the corporation, which uh, was surrounding itself with a certain kind of glamour and modernity as the cutting edge of modernity. Uh, and the, the new model businessman, the successful businessman, uh, was mostly an embodiment of, of uh, energy rather than certainly of, of any kind of stability or, or moral probity as the Victorian patriarch was. So things had changed somewhat, but they weren't, they weren't unprecedented. We had crazed panics all through the 19th century every every 15 or 20 years uh and they followed much much of the same pattern uh the whole time you make, um uh i mean you're an intellectual historian jackson rather than a moralist or a political philosopher but do you make moral judgments here or do you have moral judgments was this a good or a bad thing or was it just the thing and it, it doesn't really merit moral judgment of one kind or another well, I find what I, I, I think uh, uh, with respect to uh, animal spirits in the, and the economy, uh, in that, uh, I'm not judgmental uh, in, in the sense that I don't, I don't disapprove of, of uh, uh, financial speculation, except insofar as it uh, as it as it does damage to other people, and it can do damage to other people, uh, I I feel like the the uh, the realization that luck that we cannot control outcomes, and that uh, there's a great deal of uncertainty, which I think both Keynes and and William James emphasized in their their their, their philosophies. Uh, I think the the acknowledgement of the the power of chance. Uh, does to me create a more uh, a, a, a more desirable uh, moral outlook? One that first of all recognizes that uh, the wealthy are not necessarily wealthy because they deserve to be, and the poor are not poor uh, because they deserve to be. Uh, that uh, 
there's a there's a great deal of uh, chance and luck involved, both good and bad, in how people fare in life. And uh, a recognition of this allows for, I think, uh, a greater and more humane outlook on uh, the dispossessed, on the unsuccessful. Well, there's, uh, I mean, one of the logical <laughs> outcomes of this is the philosophy of John Rawls. Um, and uh, I, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the work well, I, of John I, Rawls. I, I, I certainly know Rawls's work, but not. The idea that because luck plays such an important role, we all work in a, in terms of his political theory, a veil of ignorance, and we all have to assume that we might be uh, the, uh, the uh, we might be the victim of ill fortune. So we we need all a kind of a welfare state infrastructure to make sure that everyone is protected from bad luck. I'm curious, Jackson, America, of course, see, saw itself as different, as a new beginning. But the idea of luck was very much rooted in uh, the Renaissance and in antiquity. Uh, Machiavelli famously wrote that fortune is a woman. How, yeah. how, how do you see this um, in the context of antiquity and of the Renaissance? Is it a continuation of... Uh, making fortune or luck and vitality central in the culture? Uh, well, yeah, I think there, there, there are definite continuities. I think that uh, what happens is, is that you, you, uh, you begin to see uh, in, in uh, the 16th and 17th centuries when uh, Elizabethan English people are beginning to settle the east coast of North America. Uh, we get the colonies in, in, uh, in Massachusetts and Virginia. And uh, I think that uh, there, is on, there is a continuing emphasis on the power of Fortuna. Uh, I, I think that uh, what goes along with that is a certain element of generosity, a certain magnanimity. I think Rawls was certainly a, a, a humane man. I don't, I don't defend his philosophy and all its points, but I think the argument that he, that he made has, uh, has weight. But I think um, what we're looking at here in terms of, of my account of animal spirits and the understanding of the relationship between body and soul is, <clears throat> at least in, in uh, uh, in Anglo-America and England and later in, the, in what, what becomes the United States. The, uh, the older uh, remnants of medieval Catholicism continue to link matter and spirit. They continue to inhabit a kind of, uh, a, a kind of enchanted universe, uh, an animated universe, uh, and that resonates uh, even with the, uh, the worldview of the indigenous peoples of the new world who also imagine an, an, an animated uh, universe. And the, uh, the Renaissance Englishmen who wade ashore uh, to uh, the, uh, the various uh, points on the East Coast from, from, uh, uh, from, from North Carolina up to Massachusetts uh, are, are encountering, uh, they, uh, a, a world which is which is both 
very strange to them and also obscurely familiar when they encounter the right so the the irony is is that america is always presented at least by um i guess it's ideologists as being rational as being different from from the native culture from the native civilizations but actually you're suggesting it wasn't that different i think there was a certain overlap i think english uh even even english protestants uh believed as as uh as Weberian and, and supposedly rational as they were, believed in signs and portents uh, and believed that uh, uh, the, the universe, the natural world still uh, contained some kind of uh, spiritual messengers to us, whether they were uh, ravens uh, uh, who portended uh, death or rain or spring. Uh, there were, they were signs and portents. The universe was still full of them. And, I think this same element of, of uh, uh, belief in an animated universe runs alongside the kind of cap the, the same kind of capitalism I'm I'm describing to you finance capitalism risk taking capitalism and it animates uh, evangelical Protestantism and the the effort oh, yeah to- and, and people often treat evangelical Protestantism today as somehow being foreign or weird but again I think what you're suggesting is it's very much in the American tradition. You've written extensively about Teddy Roosevelt. You wrote an interesting piece in the New Republic a few years ago as a not-so-great reformer. He seems to epitomize all that energy. How does TR fit into this? I, I think TR is very much a, a, a figure of, uh, who, who embodies the, uh, the assimilation of these ideas about vitality to a kind of more, more conventional Protestant uh, moralism, and also the the modernizing of them to uh, energize the building, the creation of an overseas empire. Uh, yeah, so he he wants to harness energy, particularly masculine energy, which he thinks is in danger of being depleted by the softness of an over civilized life and an overly commercial life. He wants to revive the martial spirit, but he wants to do it uh, not in the service of ancient martial ideals or medieval martial ideals, but of a modern empire. And uh, so, and this is a view that really takes hold. He is a, uh, he's an enormously popular figure. He's a media president. Um, The media love him. They follow him everywhere. He's pure act. Uh, as the, the patrician intellectual Henry Adams called him. Uh, so this kind of energy is, uh, again, he's constantly described as a being full of animal spirits. <coughs> but so is Mussolini, by the way. And I don't always like to bring up Trump, but I, I will. Uh, but before we get to Trump, I wonder in a, in a, in a, if, if, if this was a, a novel, which in a guess in a way it is, um, TR's cousin, FDR, offers an ironic turn given all his energy and his physical disability. How does FDR fit in here? And how does his New Deal, his America, uh, is it utterly foreign to what you're writing about in, in Animal Spirits or is it a, a logical outcome? Because as you know, um, Jackson, many American progressives now are deeply nostalgic 
for a New Deal America, and I'm always rather suspicious of that. Yeah, well, I, I think FDR was was uh, a great man, a great president. Uh, the way he fits into this story, it's, and he's a very important figure, obviously, <coughs> is that he recognized both, uh, as, as did Keynes ultimately, uh, that the economic depression of the 1930s was also an emotional uh, depression. And you get these dozens of uh, writers, many of them on the left, uh, traveling about the country, uh, observing uh, people, talking to people, and they come to a kind of conclusion. This is in the very early 30s. They come to a conclusion that this country uh, is involved, is, is in, in, enmeshed in, in a, a strange paralysis. They constantly use the term paralysis, and that's almost literally what happens. Cities uh, and and uh, industry and the banking system, um, commercial life, almost everything comes to a standstill. There is a strange stillness in the heart of almost every urban area you, you see described in the early 1930s, 31, 32, <clears throat> 33. And FDR recognizes this, and as, as Hoover did not, Hoover... Uh, if you placed a rose in his hand, it would wilt, uh, as, as one of his visitors said. He was, he was dour, he was glum. So FDR recognized the need for an emotional transformation and he addressed it. And of course he, he embodied it. In right, his that's the embodiment. We, we did a show with a journalist last year who suggested that uh, FDR's experience of polio and his disability was the core moment in his life, which it obviously I was. I but I think it, your argument about vitality of a man cut down, a man of enormous physical energy like his cousin TR, suddenly transformed because of polio, adds, I don't know, a Shakespearean tr tragic quality mm -hmm. to, to the narrative. It, it does, and exactly, he, he takes his paralysis, <clears throat> which of course was hidden much of the time by uh, the newspapers and the media coverage, but <clears throat> he takes his paralysis and he turns it into <clears throat> an emblem of his own over overcoming of this disability. Yeah, it's weird how history works, Jackson, isn't it? That something yes. that would have afflicted America simultaneously with FDR Perhaps he was the only man who would have been able to, not that he could change his own paralysis, although he could cover it over, but he, he seemed to at least figure out ways out from an American point of view. What about, um, there, there's so much here, and, and, I, and I, I don't want to keep you too long. What about um, uh, the African-American experience in all this? We did a show recently with Chad Williams on the great, uh, late 19th, early 20th century uh, African-American writer, philosopher Du Bois, W.E.B. Du Bois. Was this spirit, this, this animal spirits, how did it permeate slave culture and the, the African-American community after the end of slavery? Or did they exist in a, in a, in a somewhat separate sphere? I think the answer is yes to, <coughs> to both of those because <coughs> there is a, uh, a, a tremendous element of sheer vitality 
physical ease and grace uh, in African-American culture, both in slavery times and in post-emancipation times and on into the 20th century. And what I describe and what happens, I think, uh, is that uh, white Americans, uh, uh, even as they are establishing Jim Crow at home and, and uh, establishing an empire abroad, dominion over other dark-skinned peoples abroad, they are looking at these dark-skinned people with some ambivalence and a certain sense of longing for the kind of ease and grace that these people seem to have in their own skins <clears throat> and for the vitality that they seem to embody. So, excuse me, what emerges is a kind of imperial primitive. That is a sense that uh, there's a primitivist attraction to these allegedly primitive people and their physical vitality uh, there's a sense that they know something we don't, and if we white people could somehow just appropriate that, uh, we would be the stronger for it. We would be the better for it. Uh, but it, it's not about granting real equality to the darker-skinned people. It's about appropriating some of their uh, some of their features that that appeal uh, that appeal to white people, and black people recognize this. Uh, and they are willing in, in, uh, in the early 20th century, they recognize, and in fact, I think this is at the core of the, uh, the Harlem Renaissance. Mm. Uh, on, uh, on the one hand, they want to transcend uh, this notion of their own vitality, race, the primitivist labels that are often put on them. They want to yeah, especially somebody like Du Bois, of course. Of course, absolutely. Uh, and, and so Du Bois is very ambivalent toward the Harlem Renaissance himself uh, because to a large extent, it does invite a lot of white people uptown to go slumming uh, and hang out in cabarets with black people. Right, so it, it suggests, I mean, in terms of what you're saying, that we should be slightly suspicious of white people who embraced everything from jazz to rap. Well... Right, there's a long tradition of it. You can go down right through the whole 20th century and the into the 21st with <clears throat> the NBA, the, and there's just no there's there's no question that there is that that uh, uh, that kind of imperial primitivist dimension to all of this. And yet, on the other hand, uh, <laughs> these really are great athletes and great musicians and great. I would yield to no one in my admiration for Tina Turner, for example. Uh, the late and recently deceased Tina Turner. And she's just an, an example of a figure who became a uh, kind of totemic icon in, uh, in, in my household, at least. So I, I recognize the, the appeal of this. I also recognize the annoyance uh, that black people must feel in being uh, conventionally stereotyped in, in certain ways, even if they are uh, favorable stereotypes they can still be somewhat constraining. So it's a, it's a very tricky business. And a lot of Harlem Renaissance writers write about this kind of tension between the races, especially mixed race people like, well, they're almost all mixed race in one way or another, but Nella Larson is, is, is the most uh, painfully aware of her mixed race background. Uh, and she writes 
this novel Quicksand, which plays back and forth brilliantly between black and white worlds and her inability to feel at home in either one of them. So it's a it's a tragic situation for right. It's certainly uh, Jackson. Let's end. Um, I don't always like to end with Donald Trump, but I, I I can't resist on this one because I'm no great fan of of, of Trump. I'm sure you're not either. But when you look at him, his photo, his behavior, mm-hmm. his language, um, there's. There's a demonic energy to it, particularly, I think, compared and contrasted with someone like Joe Biden. How how would Trump fit into this? In in some ways, he seems to epitomize uh, that animal spirits that you write about in your book, this pursuit of vitality from camp meeting to Wall Street. And of course, um, He's bound up in all this stuff, Wall Street and everything else. Is he, in, in an odd way, people always, or, or many progressives see Trump as being somehow deeply foreign to the American tradition. Is there something actually rather native to, to Trump and his energy, this oh, vitality? But, it, but it's demonic. I mean, it's, yeah. it, it seems to be almost engineered or driven by the devil. Well, I think he, he's... Uh, he's partly driven, though, by by uh, many uh, people. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> many people who voted for Obama twice also voted for Trump, uh, and I think they were voting for, in both cases, for something out what they hoped or they expected to be outside the Washington consensus, and. The, the reason for that, it seems to me, is partly a question uh, of, of Trump's style. Uh, he's not only uh, an embodiment of animal magnetism, as a lot of people uh, observers said, and this is the kind of thing that whips up crowds and makes people think of Mussolini and fascism. And of course, there are, there are real resonances there, at least in terms of style. Uh, but, at, but at the same time, uh, Trump... Uh, is is uh, uh, is is a uh, another figure from the American past, the confidence man. He can't, you know, he's a he's the guy that's gonna gonna sell you uh, a bill of goods, and uh, people. And, and this again is is sort of the dark side of the the self made man, is the confidence man who gets. Um, what it, where he wants to get by saying whatever will serve his needs and serve his purpose. So he's he's deeply uh, untrustworthy, but he he satisfies a craving for directness and spontaneity and energy, all of which seem to be lacking in the very technocratic candidates that the Democratic Party seems to put forward. Right, it's it's um, back to Hoover, although Hoover was a Republican, but Hoover well, was the ultimate technocrat. Uh, he was sort of the ultimate technocrat in 1988. George Herbert Walker Bush did not have many animal spirits, but he was, you know, he was the doddering uh, and the lovable patriarch, or however he was presented. Anyway, he, was, he seemed at least to be human, unlike Dukakis, who seemed uh, somewhat mechanized. I think Hillary Clinton seemed very technocratic and mm-hmm. off-putting to a lot of people. She didn't. She wasn't able to engage viscerally uh, with crowds, except of her most fervent admirers, I guess. But uh, 
in general, I think there is an aura of technocratic elitist rationality about democratic policies. And Trump could set himself apart from that, even though, you know, he ultimately was, you know, was just hungry for power and for whatever would advance his own interests and was swallowed up pretty much by the Washington consensus once he, once he joined, except to posture around the edges of it occasionally. But he's plainly unfit to govern. Anybody can see that if you look at him closely at all. But he solves, he, he, he serves certain emotional needs that people feel for uh, excitement, for spontaneity, uh, and, and for energy uh, that a, a, you know, a technocratic recitation of uh, job gains and uh, GDP numbers, it, it's just not going to do that. It's just not going to do that. If you listen to NPR accounts, of, of political debates, as you have, as anyone who's listened to NPR accounts of political debates for the last many years, uh, and will know that they're all about dueling statistics. Uh, they're, they're not about uh, impassioned debate and, and about uh, leaders taking, um, con- you know, courageous stands on fundamental issues. Uh, they're about, well, you know, we, we raised the growth rate 3% last year, so vote for us again. I mean, there, there's a kind of stultifying uh, quality to so much of it, which is why, and, and a carefulness as well. And of course, Trump is not careful about anything. He doesn't care who he insults. He doesn't abide by uh, the canons of civility. So all of this is outrageous and uh, repellent, and yet it's, it's somehow seems more authentic to certain people than uh, what passes for good sense and common sense in Washington.